0: Matthew 16. Because of the times that we live in, this may make this message even more important. Jesus asks his disciples who do they say he is. Peter responds and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responds to him and says, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. This is Matthew 16, 17. For flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you, That thou art Peter and upon this rock. Now the rock isn't Peter. The rock is the knowledge that Jesus Jesus is the Christ. Upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Folks that's true no matter who wins an election. It's true no matter what persecution the church endures. It's true no matter what terrorist activities are operating in or against us. As a country. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice he says the keys of the kingdom of heaven are in direct relation to binding and loosing. And binding and loosing starts on the earth, not in heaven. The authority to bind and loose is here. It's not in heaven. Now, I've made the statement before about keys not being what we think of as keys to the house or keys to the car or things like that, but having to do with knowledge. But let me read to you from Luke chapter 11. Uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and lawyers are there. Lawyers are the equivalent of the scribes, as I understand it. And so the lawyers are concerned because when Jesus was speaking against the Pharisees, he got over on their toes, too. And I'll just take a verse out of context so you see. Luke chapter 11, verse 52, he said, Woe be unto you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You've taken away the key of knowledge. Now, we've said before that uh, keys aren't like we're used to keys, is unlocking car doors and uh, office doors and doors to our home and stuff like that. They didn't have locks like we do. Keys were given as a symbol that you'd mastered a certain field of study if you went to what we would consider a university or or whatever they called them in those days. When you completed that field of study, they'd give you a key that you'd wear around your waist, around your belt, hang from your belt to show everybody that you were a learned or scholarly person, at least in that area of study. So when Jesus says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about masters of the knowledge of the principles of the kingdom of God. Woe unto you, scribes, or lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering, entering in, you hindered. So when Jesus tells us that he's given us the keys of the kingdom, those keys of the kingdom have to include authority because he directly attaches the, the ability or the authority to bind and loose here on the earth. Too many Christians are loosing the wrong things in their lives. Too many Christians are failing to bind the work of the devil in their lives. Now, when we talk about the keys of the kingdom of heaven, we're going to have to identify what we mean. And I think Jesus did that for us. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And he gives them what we consider to be or what is known to be as the Lord's Prayer. He starts off in verse uh, 9. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Notice the first thing he says, thy kingdom come, or I'm sorry, thy will be done. I'm sorry, I'm messing this up. Verse 10, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Thy kingdom come. Now, notice he's saying the kingdom of God has not yet come. Thy kingdom would have to be God's kingdom, wouldn't it? Notice at the point in time he gave them this scripture or gave them this teaching, gave them this prayer. The kingdom of God had not come. That's not the case today. That's one reason why this is not a New Testament prayer. You remember in in, uh, John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He said, Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with it. Jesus responds and says, except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God or cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't understand what he was talking about being born again. So he talks about entering in the second time into his mother's womb. And how is that possible and so forth. And Jesus said, except a man be born of water, that's human birth, natural birth. And of the spirit, that's the change that happens, the new creation change that happens when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So when Jesus is telling us, telling them in Matthew chapter 6 to pray that the kingdom of God would come. We know two things. Number one is we know the kingdom of God had not yet come because he's telling them to pray for it. Secondly, we know that God wants that to come because Jesus wouldn't teach him to pray outside or contrary to the will of God, would he? So this is what God intended or desired to take place. Now, what is the kingdom of God? I had for many years, for most of my Christian life, looked at that as just kind of generic term That means things about God, stuff about God. But that can't be what it is. Jesus told the disciples to go out and heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. The Bible says the disciples went out preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God. Well, what do they know about God to preach? Even after they're born again in Acts chapter 3 and doing signs and wonders and miracles... It says the council, the Pharisees and the council took knowledge of them that they were ignorant and unlearned men. Well, would Jesus just leave it up to the disciples to to teach whatever they thought about God? That wouldn't make sense, would it? That would seem to be counterproductive to the work that Jesus was sent here on the earth to do. I believe Jesus is defining the kingdom of God for us in Matthew 6.10. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the kingdom of God is where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Now, I've been saying pretty regularly that that answers a lot of questions. But it's come to my attention that I need to say it in a different way. And that is, what question does that not answer? I've been in ministry for 35 years, pastoring for 30, be pretty close to 31. And never in that time have I ever had anybody come to me with any idea about how God is in heaven other than a perfect God, a good God, a loving Father, one who desires for things to be good for us, well for us, providing healing and blessing. Abundance and no lack. Nobody has ever come and questioned what's God going to be like in heaven. You ever heard anybody ask a question like that? Even the nominal Christian understands that in heaven, God is perfect. God is good and God is only good. Well, what makes God any different with us being here on the earth? Bible says God said of himself, I am God, I change not. That means the way God is in heaven is the way that he has to be while we're here on the earth. Because God doesn't change whether we're here or whether we're there. Isn't that right? That has to be right. So then what makes the church primarily question what God is doing to us or for us while we're here on the earth? God's the same. God wants the same for us. God has provided the same for us if the Bible is true. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, about verse 19, 20, somewhere around there, it says that that the the Jews tried to pin him down and and demanded of him when the kingdom of God should come. And Jesus answered and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. In other words, you won't know it because of some outward sign or show. He said, The kingdom is within. The kingdom is within. So now what does that mean? If we follow the logical pattern of thought, that has to mean that the source for you to realize the will of God on the earth, just like it is or is and will be for you in heaven when you get there, comes from an inside, internal, unseen source. Now turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 1, second letter that Peter wrote to the church. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So who's he writing to? He's writing to anybody that's born again, right? And notice it says that we've received the same, the like precious faith, the same like precious faith. In other words, you've got the same faith that Peter had who did miracles and healings. You've got the same faith that Jesus had who destroyed the power of the devil when he was here on the earth? Your faith is just the same. No difference, just the same. Now you may be using yours in a different way than he did or they did, but it's the same faith that can be developed in the same manner and can be used to the same purpose. It's the same faith, it's not a different faith. Jesus had a, didn't have a different faith than you have. The Bible says you've got the same faith that can produce the same results. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In other words, grace and peace need a little bit of definition as far as I'm concerned. Grace is mostly defined as unmerited favor. That really doesn't mean too much to me. It doesn't give me the information about what's being said. If the Holy Ghost picked a word, there must be a meaning to it. The word grace literally means divine influence on the heart. Now, you can trace back every bit of divine or godly influence that there is on your heart or your spirit or your inner man can be traced and and finds its origin in one simple thing. And that is the finished work of Jesus. It's through the resurrection, the sacrifice, and the resurrection of Jesus that God has any and every influence on your heart. Now, what does the finished work of Jesus entail? Everything that He died for. Bible says Jesus died for your sins, He died for your physical well being or your healing. He died for your prosperity or your peace. Hebrew word shalom, well being in every area. So he's saying the finished work of Jesus and all of its benefits and peace. This is the, the Greek word, erene. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it sounds better than Irene. But it literally means the same thing as the Hebrew word shalom. It's not as inclusive as the Hebrew word shalom, but it means well-being. It means peace. It means rest. It means things going well for you in your life. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Since the kingdom of God came with the new birth, Colossians 1.13 says that Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Well, the kingdom of his dear son would have to be the kingdom of God, would it not? What would the kingdom of Jesus be if not the kingdom of God? So that says, the Bible tells us that that's already occurred through the new birth. Once we receive Jesus as the Lord of our lives, then we're translated or placed within the kingdom of God, the place where the will of God is done or can be done in the earth in our lives, just like it is in heaven. So here he's saying grace and peace, the finished work of Jesus and well-being in every area are multiplied to you. Are multiplied to you through one specific means. And that's through the knowledge of God and through Jesus. Notice the kingdom of God is based on knowledge. Or maybe we should say it this way. The realization of the kingdom of God in your life. Where his will is done here on the earth. For you and in you. Just like it is and will be in heaven. Comes through knowledge. Comes through knowledge. Notice it doesn't come through some special act of God operating from heaven. It comes from through knowledge, knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Verse three, according as His divine power, what divine power was displayed, if not at the resurrection? So let's say it this way: According as His resurrection power has given unto us—that's past tense—has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now remember Jesus in John chapter ten and verse ten said, the thief comes for one purpose, and that is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, what kind of life is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about existence. He's got to be talking about a quality of life that we know of as eternal life. Or as the Bible sometimes refers to, as everlasting life. He said, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Who would be a better example of that life in operation than Jesus? He said himself, as the Father has life in himself, so has he given the Son to have life in himself. It's the same word, zoe, that's used throughout. So Jesus is saying, I came to bring you this same life. Now, we know that he's got to be talking about the new birth. But he's also got to be talking about more than just getting saved. He was an example of of a lot more than just being in righteous fellowship with God. The power of God is exhibited in his life. Had to be an example for us as well. The fact that he was able, by the anointing of the Spirit of God, to break the devil's power in every situation that he encountered, has to be part of the example too, does it not? That's part of life. The life that he came to bring us and to bring us more abundantly. Notice how that life is manifested in you. He's already writing to Christians, so he's not telling anybody to get saved not telling anybody to be born again. He's saying that this belongs to those who are born again. Just like you and me. According as his divine power, his resurrection power has given us already, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That life would include victory in every area, would it not? So you've already been given everything that you need to manifest victory in your life in every area now this is a point where some people will tune up and say well pastor mike if that's true why am i in such trouble why am i undergoing such hardship such trials such tests maybe god's trying to teach me something well he is trying to teach you something he's trying to teach you that the means of victory is not through adversity he's not the author of adversity He's trying to show you that there's a way into victory to overcome anything and everything that the devil throws at you. Well, what's that means of victory? According as his divine resurrection power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life, eternal life, everlasting life, not when we get to heaven but now, and godliness through the knowledge, through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. He's saying again, the key to manifesting the kingdom of God in your life where the will of God is done for you here and now in the earth, just like it is in heaven, comes through knowledge. It comes through knowledge. Now, folks, if we just stopped right there, and we're not. But if we just stopped right there, we could identify why most of the church is weak and sickly and under the uh, the chains and the boundaries of the devil. Through ignorance. Don't confuse the word ignorance with stupidity. Some ignorant Christians are stupid too. But when I speak of ignorance, I mean lack of knowledge. The Old Testament said, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That hadn't changed. So it comes to the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue whereby for this reason whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these by the word of God the promises in the word of God that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature now wait a minute I thought these people are already saved if they're saved they're new creatures in Christ Jesus are they not so the partakers of the divine nature does not just mean saved does not just mean born again it means experiencing the will of God in your life here on the earth just like it is in heaven that by these exceeding great and precious promises you might be able or might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust in other words what he's simply saying is free from all the boundaries of the devil now turn back with me to John chapter 8 John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking some difficult things to the disciples and, and the crowd that's around. I'm going to start in verse 28 just so that I don't pull a couple of verses out of context. John chapter 8 beginning in verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them. When you have lifted up the son of man. Talking about his own crucifixion. Then shall you know that I am he. Literally. The word he is in. Is in italics. Means the translators added it. He's literally saying when you've lifted up the son of man. Son of man you shall know that I am. He's referencing when God told Moses. I am that I am. Then shall you know that I am. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is saying the source of His works is speaking the words of his Father. He said, "I do I can of myself, do nothing, but the things that I do come as a result of saying the words that the Father gives me. He's just called himself God. He's just identified himself as one with the Father. I am the creator of the universe he says the source of the works that I'm doing, the miracles and the healings that I'm doing here on the earth is the spoken word of God. Now, folks, if that was true for Jesus, why would we expect it to be different for us? God's word hadn't changed. God's word hadn't lost any power. The word produced miracles in and through Jesus. The word will still produce miracles in and through you. I'm glad you're excited about that. That is what he's saying, isn't it? And he that sent me is with me, and the Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Now notice verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Now the many that he's talking about include the Jews. Talking about many of the, the, the uh leaders and the priests and so forth then said jesus notice verse 31 then said jesus to those jews which believed on him now they're believers they're accepting what he's saying about being united with the father and the source of the works being the father in him then said jesus to these jews which believed on him if you continue in my word then are you my disciples indeed now please notice something folks I want to make sure that you... I don't take this for granted and just assume that you see what's there. Jesus makes a distinction between believers and disciples. Jesus has just spoken to the Jews that believed on him. He's just identified himself as the great I am. And many of the Jews believed. Now Jesus makes a distinction between believers and disciples. He's literally saying... Good, now you believe. Here's how you go on to be disciples. Now, can we categorize or identify the believers as getting people saved? Nobody could be saved in Jesus' day until after his resurrection. But for us, this would be the difference in having somebody gotten to getting somebody saved as opposed to making disciples out of them. The Great Commission is going to all the world and make disciples. Not going to all the world and get people saved. Jesus is the one that's making the distinction. Not me, not the church. Jesus makes the distinction. He says to the believers, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples. Now notice what the benefit or the result of continuing in the word is in the next verse. And you'll know the truth. Now, wait a minute. Didn't they know the truth when Jesus said that I am? When I'm lifted up, then you'll know that I am. That I am really the son of God. That I am one with the father. Don't they know the truth about that? Well, sure. That's why they became believers. That was the source of their believing on him. But that's not the end of the story. And here's where I think the modern day church has done a great disservice. To the work of God. We focused on getting people saved. The focus of the church. The modern day church. Has been to get the unsaved saved. But then what? Well they're kind of on their own. Of course if we want them to come to church. We want them to pay their tithes. And get involved and so forth. But we're too busy getting people saved. To worry about the ones that are in. But Jesus said if you continue in my word then are you my disciples God's after disciples not just converts the church is focused on the converts or conversions rather than disciples if you continue in my word then are you my disciples and you shall know the truth Where are they going to find out the truth? The truth of what? Remember the whole thing is about the kingdom of God. Where God's will is done in you and in your life here on the earth just like it is in heaven. How are you going to find out the way to make that a reality? Now folks, correct me if I'm wrong here. But I don't know of anybody that's claiming that the will of God is being done on the earth just like it is in heaven by virtue of the fact that everybody is looking for heaven to be a means of escape. Let me say it this way. Why would heaven be a means of escape if the will of God was being done on the earth just like it is there? Why should that be the, the way that the church looks at heaven? But you know as well as I do that that's the majority opinion of heaven. Oh, when we just get to heaven and leave this earth behind... Folks, this earth was created perfect. It's messed up now because of the operation of the devil. But the earth still belongs to God. What's supposed to be so bad about this earth? Now Some might say, oh, Pastor Mike, that's dangerous. Because now you're talking to people about not being eternally minded. Well, actually, what I'm talking to you about is about being eternally life-minded. If I can get you mindful of eternal life and the ramifications of what that eternal life is supposed to provide for you in your existence here and now in the earth, that I can make you more effective in the kingdom of God now rather than waiting for you to get to heaven and find out there are a lot of things that you could have and should have done. I think heaven, one of the scriptures that's always intrigued me about heaven is where the Bible says God will wipe away every tear. What in the world are people going to be crying about when they get to heaven? If it's this perfect place, and it is, then what are people going to be crying about that he has to wipe away every tear? And where it says wipe away every tear, I believe it means erase every memory. I don't think he's just handing out Kleenex. Because if heaven is a place where Christians are motivated and ruled by their emotions just like they are here, then as soon as they wipe a tear away, then another one's going to show up in its place. What are Christians going to be crying about in heaven? I believe it's going to be lost opportunities, unfulfilled potential. I believe a lot of the church, maybe even most of the church, is going to get to heaven and realize. You mean that authority in the Jesus name stuff would have enabled me to do this that would have reached them and could have kept them from going to hell? Let me say it this way. I'm seeing more and more responsibility to manifest the kingdom of God in my life in order to reach people. If the preaching of the gospel, if the preaching of of what is considered to be the gospel of Jesus going to the cross and being raised from the dead was sufficient to do the job, why isn't the job already done? You cannot say that America has not been evangelized. There may be parts of the world which haven't heard the gospel and we need to get them, get to those people, certainly. But what about America? By and large, as a whole, America has been evangelized. What I mean by that is they've heard that there is a Jesus. They may not know who he is. They may not know what he did in its entirety, but they've heard that there is a Jesus. But they haven't seen the power of the devil broken over people's lives. There's a real interesting scripture. It's in, uh, I think it's in Luke chapter 8, where Jesus talks about certain cities. He says, woe unto you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. For if the works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Then he goes on and says, woe unto you, Capernaum, where Jesus did the majority of his works. He said, woe unto you, Capernaum, for if Tyre and Sidon had seen the works that you have seen. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes years ago. The Tyre and Sidon were the ultimate representation of the evil ones. Their treatment of the Jews over the years made them the mortal enemies of the Jews. We think of the Philistines, but the Philistines were lightweight when it came to the torture and the misuse and mistreatment of of uh, the Jews over thousands of years. So Jesus said that the kingdoms of Tyre and Sidon would have repented in sackcloth and ashes many times over if they'd seen the same works as as the people in Capernaum saw. Now, what does that mean? Here's why this is an interesting scripture to me. It means it's easier to reach the unsaved with the power of God than it is the religious. See, the Jews have got it together. They've got a covenant with God. These miracles were a show for them. Not a life changing experience. But to the unsaved, miracles are life changing experiences. So then, if Jesus is smart enough to know that it's the place that miracles hold with getting people into the kingdom of God, what do you think he wants to reach the unsaved with today? The eloquence of our preaching, our church programs. Maybe if we give something a snappy title, that'll do it. Maybe if we tell people about how our story is connected to their story. I hear preachers saying things like that today and I wonder, I think, well, that sounds cool. What in the world does that mean? I don't have a story except one about Jesus. So, back to John 8. Then said Jesus to these Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, shall make you free. Notice where you get the truth that makes you free. Free from what? Free from all the bondage of the devil. Free from sickness, free from disease, free from poverty, free from lack, free from every evil work, that tries to hold people back and hinder them from the things that God has provided for them through the finished work of Jesus. And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Let me close with one last scripture. I'll refer to some others, but this is the last one I'll have you turn to. See, I can cheat on time that way. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is taking over for the children, uh, is the leader of the children of Israel. He's taking over for for Moses. Moses has for 40 years led the children of Israel with signs and wonders and miracles. Now you do understand that Nicodemus' question in John chapter 3 to Jesus was about the miracles and the connection to the kingdom of God. Jesus makes that connection himself. He says the key to the, the miracles is the entering into the kingdom of God. So when Moses does the miracles, even though you couldn't be born again in his day, by the anointing of God on the position that he had called Him, that God had called Moses to stand in we would have to say that parting the Red Sea is a part of the kingdom of God would we not he couldn't do that on his own we'd have to say that striking the rock and water coming forth from it was a part of has to be a part of the kingdom of God would it not it's not something you do on your own manna had to be a part of the kingdom of God did it not Sure. So everything that Moses has done, that doesn't even take into account the the, the destruction of Korah and all the people that followed him when the earth swallowed it, opened up and swallowed them and closed back up over them. The the people have seen Moses operate in miracle after miracle after miracle, all as a part of, that we know now is a part of, of the kingdom of God. It has to be. It's not part of this earthly kingdom, it's not part of this earthly system. It has to be part of the kingdom of God. Now Joshua is going to take over. Those are some big shoes to fill. But God tells him how to do it. God tells him how to be effective and how to be successful in leading the children of Israel, just like Moses was effective and successful in leading them before him. And here's the instruction that he gives him. He's already told him, no man will stand before you all the days of your life. That means nobody will be able to withstand him. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. And then he gives him instruction. Now, most people would want to stop with what God said. I'll be with you and nobody will be able to stand against you. And they'd start strutting around saying, I'm the big dog. But that's when God told Joshua, here's what you need to do. We could certainly say that he was in with God from the point in time that God selected him and said, nobody will be able to stand before you. I'll be with you just like I was with Moses. Nobody knew what God being with him like he was with Moses would mean more than Joshua because Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. He's seen things and experienced miracles like very few people would ever have. Or could ever have. Then God gives him something to do. I can't overemphasize that point folks. This is what God has for you to do. To operate in the kingdom of God. He wouldn't handpick Joshua. And give him different instruction than you. Because it's all part of the same kingdom. The difference was the kingdom hadn't yet come. He was operating on a promissory note of the kingdom. We're operating in the real thing. We've got it better than Joshua. So here's the instruction that God gives Joshua. Remember the grace and the peace, the finished work of Jesus, and all the benefits of eternal life come through the knowledge of God and of Jesus. Jesus said the key to being a disciple is to continue in the word so that you'll gain knowledge of the truth. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So we can summarize that by saying the, the means or the method Of the will of God being done in your life. Just like it is in heaven. No difference. On the earth. Just like it is in heaven. Is knowledge. How are we going to gain that knowledge? God tells Joshua how. Verse 8. Chapter 1 verse 8. This book of the law. That's all they had of the word of God. Was the five books of Moses. So we've got more, so let's change this from this book of the law because we we're not under the law of the Old Covenant. Let's change this to the Word of God. Let's look at the principle. This Word of God shall not depart out of thy mouth. Notice the first connection he makes to the Word of God is your mouth. This Word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. Now as soon as the Word leaves your lips, it's departed. How do you keep it from departing? You say it again. And then what do you do after it departs then? You say it again. In other words, he's saying, speak the word continually. This word of God shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Notice what he calls speaking the word continually to be. He calls that meditating. It's an interesting thing to me. That meditating, according to the Bible definition, is speaking the word into your own spirit. Continuing in the word by speaking the word into your own spirit where God can speak to you. That's counterfeit in the Eastern religions and by the work of the devil as emptying your mind of all thought so that the devil can speak to you. And because of the earthly definition of meditation, the Eastern religion definition of meditation, many Christians are afraid of the term. But it just simply means speak the word continually. Speak the word continually. This word of God shall not depart of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Speak it continually day and night. To what end that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein? So it's doing the word it's putting the word in your heart and doing the word putting the word in your heart by speaking it and then doing it or acting on what it says to do that brings these results for then. For then after you speak it continually and act on it from your heart for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous notice God doesn't even do it for you. You make your own way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. Now folks, we come full circle because Jesus said in Matthew sixteen nineteen, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. How do you bind and loose? By speaking the word continually. What's the end result? Then you make your way prosperous. And then you have good success. This is the very same thing Jesus said in Mark chapter 4 was the secret to the kingdom of God. He tells him a parable about the sower sowing the word. The upshot of the parable is very simply this. Speak the word no matter what trouble comes. Speak the word no matter who speaks against you. Speak the word no matter what you think it might do to your business success. Speak the word instead of getting distracted by the cares of this life. Speak the word out of a desire for God more than any other desire speak the word now folks some people will say I've had people say this or something similar to this over the years pastor Mike it seems like every time you preach no matter what you title it it's all about speaking the word have you discovered that yet <laughs> well here's the reality the reality is that I could speak, talk about speaking the word every service till Jesus comes back, and I will. And still only 25% of the church is going to do it. Of that 25% of the church, there are four types of ground. One type of ground is the only one that brings forth results. That's 25%. Of that 25%, he said, people bring forth results in varying degrees. Some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. So one third of 25% is 8%. 8% are going to get maximum potential from speaking the word. What does that mean? That means the vast majority of people are going to get distracted. They're going to let trouble keep them from saying what God's word says. They're going to let what other people think about them keep them from saying what God's word says. They're going to get more interested in making money than they are in speaking the word. They're going to let other things become more important to them than the things of God. They're going to get distracted by taking care of the mundane issues of life. I've got a word for you from God. Speak the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. What a privilege it is to know that it's your will for us to have things here on the earth just like they are in heaven. What a privilege it is to know that you're not different toward us just because we're on the earth and not yet in heaven. You're just as much for us here as you are there. You're just as much on our side here as you are when we get to heaven. Your desire for our finances is the same here while we're on the earth. as when we get to heaven when everything has been provided for. Your desire for our bodies, our physical well-being is the same while we're here on the earth. As it is in heaven where every disease and sickness has been banished. What a privilege it is to know, Father, that you're the same and your will for us is the same and that you've made provision for all things that pertain to life and godliness through the work of Jesus. Oh, Father, increase our knowledge. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you that the eyes of our understanding being enlightened that we may know What is the hope of your calling? And what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints? And that we may know the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Father, we've made a commitment to continue in your word, to become your disciples. Thank you for revealing the truth to us. You said the Holy Spirit was the guide. He would guide us into all truth. Thank you that the Holy Spirit guides us into the truth of healing. The truth of abundance. The truth of peace. The truth of our authority in Christ Jesus. Father, let it be in us. Just like it was in the early church. That we reach people with signs and wonders. Not because we convince them of anything with our words. But let us be demonstrators of the power of God. Jesus, the word says that you're waiting to come for the church until your enemies are made your footstool. Let us be the generation that lives up to that. Let us be the generation that destroys the power of the devil over other people's lives through the authority of the name of Jesus. They may see and know that they may see and know that they may see and know that you've been raised from the dead and that you're alive today. Let it be so, Father. Change us however we need to be changed. Correct our thinking however it needs to be corrected. Correct our believing however it needs to be corrected. That we might truly be disciples in word and in deed in this earth. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. If you can agree with that prayer, say amen with me. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, let's all stand together. If there's anything in the body of Christ that's greater than knowledge of God, it's this. It's the application of that knowledge. Let's be doers of the word. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We love you. Thank you for being with us.